I've spent a lot of time in uh, Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and uh, one of the things that there is an abundance of there is pancake houses. Uh, some of you can, can attest to that. Uh, you can get just about any kind of pancake you want. Apple pancakes, banana pancakes, blueberry pancakes, strawberry pancakes, oatmeal pancakes, um, cinnamon roll pancakes. It's kind of like Bubba Gump and shrimp, right? It just goes on and on and on. I love breakfast food, so I love a good pancake house. I, I love uh, a good pancake. But if this has ever happened to you, you know how devastating it is. When you make pancakes, you set them out on the table, and then somebody says these words, where's the syrup? Here's the question. What do you do when you have prepared a pancake breakfast and you've forgotten the syrup? I really think you have a couple of options. One, you don't eat the pancakes. Or two, you eat the pancakes plain. And in my opinion, you can't eat the pancakes plain. It's disgusting, right? I'm convinced that, that syrup covers a multitude of sins, right? Like, syrup makes it all better. The only reason we have pancakes is so we can get syrup into our mouth. The, the pancake is a vehicle for syrup. And today, I want to talk to you about syrup, about the one thing that changes everything. With it, everything falls into place. Without it, nothing else matters. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 2. We're in this new series where we're journeying through the first few chapters of Revelation where Jesus is writing through the Apostle John to specific churches in his day. He's giving them encouragement. He's writing to the context that they find themselves uniquely in. And he's got a word of commendation, a word of correction, a word of instruction for the churches he writes to. So I want you to listen as he begins with these letters, with a letter to the church at Ephesus. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you remember last week, we saw Jesus reigning above, we saw Jesus advocating for, and we saw Jesus walking among the churches, and John wants to reiterate that as he writes to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the preeminent cities in the region of Asia Minor in this time. If you were to walk around the streets of Ephesus in 90 AD, when John is writing this letter, you would have seen a number of things. The church at Ephesus had a very rich history. It was begun by the Apostle Paul as he walked in this city and met different people. He cast demons out. He saw jailers freed. He saw amazing things in the city of Ephesus. This church was planted by Paul himself, but it had history. It had attachment. It was attached to people like Timothy, who Paul writes to. Aquila and Priscilla spent time there. John even went back there to live and used Ephesus as kind of a hub for ministry, as a way to pastor and to reach all these different churches in the region. In fact, tradition would tell us that Ephesus is where the Apostle John came to live with Mary, Jesus' mother, after he began to care for her. It's the place where the Apostle Paul spent more time than he spent anywhere else. He ministered in Ephesus for three years. Now, we're going to show a, a map of Ephesus, and uh, 
if, if you can put that map up on the screen, you can see that, uh, that Ephesus is located down on the sea. It was the biggest, it was the greatest harbor in all of Asia, which meant that it was also one of the wealthiest cities. Merchants coming in and going out. One Roman writer said that the city of Ephesus was the light of all of Asia. It was also home not only to a church that was birthed about 40 years earlier, but it was also a city that was rampant with, with idolatry, with the worship of pagan gods. Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis. She was the Greek goddess of hunting, so you could often see her with her bow and arrow pulled back. She was also the goddess of fertility and children. Ironically, the goddess of virginity, too. Artemis was worshipped all over the world at this time. People would come and flock to Ephesus to, to pay tribute to this goddess. The temple was 425 feet long and, and 220 feet wide. It had 120 columns that were each 60 feet tall. And can you imagine what it would have been like to, to worship in this temple? Ephesus was also home to the temple of Domitian. A number of cities in the ancient Roman world bid on the ability to create and build a temple where the emperor would be worshipped. And Ephesus won that bid. So it tells you something about their political landscape, doesn't it? Ephesus, as we also said, was, was a bustling town. It was filled with overachievers. They had hot and cold running water. They had a theater that seated 25,000 people. Can you imagine what it would have been like to go there? They also had a library. It was built shortly after John writes this letter, but it tells you something about Ephesus. One of the most magnificent libraries in the ancient world, ousted only by probably the library in Alexandria. If you were to walk into the market, you would have held a coin in your hand, unique to Ephesus, that had a honeybee on it. You say, why, why a honeybee? Well, for two reasons. One, the temple prostitutes that serviced people at the temple of Artemis were considered to be priestesses, and they were called honeybees. But also, Ephesus prided itself on being a hard-working, fast-charging city. They were busy bees, if you will, and their money proved it. So when Jesus writes to this church, roughly 40 years after its birth, and they're trying to follow the way of Jesus in a city like Ephesus, there's some things that Jesus wants to say to them. There's some instruction that he wants to give them. And I think as we listen to what he says to them, there's some things that he wants to say to us as well. Here's the way the passage continues, verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work. Now just a quick time out. In the original Greek language, this is the most emphatic way that you can say you're trying to get something done. You're putting your sweat, your soul, your mind into accomplishing this and your perseverance. In the Greek, it's the word hupomone. It means that, that you live under the weight of something and you continue to move forward. You're working your hands to the bone and, and you're remaining under the weight of these outside things that are pushing in. The temple of Artemis, the, the temple of, of, of Domitian, this busy bee society. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. 
Now, this is what Paul commanded the elders of Ephesus to do. You can read about it in, in Acts 20, verse 9. And have found them false, it says. It says, man, you're sniffing out the heretic. You're kicking them out of the church. Good work. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Good deeds, check. Good discipline, check. Good doctrine, check. Good determination, check. We got it all. At this point, the Ephesian church may be going, well, where's the confetti? Let's get out the the glasses. Let's raise our glasses. we're, we're, We're nailing this thing. Make no mistake about it. These things are really, really good. In fact, they were commanded to do these things. They were things they were told to do, but they're pancakes. They're pancakes without the syrup. They're not a whole lot of good by themselves. Which is why Jesus follows it with with one word. This huge, short word. Yet. Like, you've stuck the dismount, but you're in the wrong event. Without this one thing, everything else sort of falls to the wayside. Nothing else really matters if you don't get this one thing. It's the syrup for the pancakes, if you will. In the Greek, it's, it's this word, Allah, which means it's, it's setting a contrast. It's this emphatic conjunction. Like, okay, you, you did these great things, yet, yet, I have this against you, which you never want to hear. It's like Jesus is saying, look up at me, write this down, don't miss this. I have this against you. I died for you, and I have this against you. I walk among you, and I have this against you. He says, you've abandoned, you've walked away from verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The love you had for God, the love you had for others, the love that defined you, the love that shaped you, the love that you held on to as the greatest command somehow got on the same level as everything else. So hear Jesus' words, but I also want you to hear his passion. The love that he has in saying, I have this against you. There, there's this sickness of heart. There's this cancer that you can't see that's eventually going to kill you. You've grown cold. Maybe they lost their love for evangelism. Maybe they lost their love for a lot of other things. But before they lost their love for anything else, they lost their love for other people. They lost their love for God. And here's what we start to learn about the way Jesus is calling us to live in this world. God did not create us to be duty-driven robots. He designed us to be passionately loving people. Right now, I want you to ask yourself, am I duty-driven or am I passionately loving? So why in the world does God redeem you and I? Is it so that we would have good deeds, good doctrine, good discipline? That's part of the story. He wants us to live as, as a light on the hill. He wants us to hold on to things that are true and, and to shape our lives around reality. Not some farce that's a lie, that, that's like a weight on our shoulders. More than anything else, he loves us so that we might love him and others in return. That's at the heart of it all. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it. He says, every Christian would agree 
that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. I think part of what happened is they might have confused the gospel with response to the gospel. And they started to worship the response rather than the good news itself. This passage hit me differently this week as as I was thinking about the absolute astounding nature of the statement that Jesus is making. You've probably heard this before. You've probably heard it at a wedding. I want you to listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, so if I have wisdom from below and from above and what I'm saying is true, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Did you know that whether or not people actually hear the words you say is not solely determined by the content of what you say, but with the affection and the heart with which you say it? Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. He goes, if you want to have influence, and we think influence comes from our understanding and our knowledge and our faith. He says, if you want to have influence, love. Love. It doesn't matter what else you do if you don't have love. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So here's the deal, friends. I, I, I spent some time thinking about how. How? How does this happen to a church like Ephesus? I also wanted to ask the question, how could this happen to a person like me? How could this happen to people like you? And there's two things that stood out to me. One is time. Have you ever noticed the way that consistency has the ability to erode curiosity? Or that faithfulness has the unique ability to erode wonder? I've done dozens of weddings, and, and I've seen people stand in front of each other with this, this kind of glazed-over puppy dog look in their eyes, and they pledge their, devotement, they, they pledge their devotion, and, and they make a commitment to one another. They enter into this, this covenant. And every couple I talk to, I, I tell them, just pause, and to remember that the magnificence of this moment will one day be normal, Right? You'll wake up next to each other the next morning and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I get to wake up next to this person that I love. And I don't have to say goodbye anymore. And we don't have to talk on the phone anymore. And one day it'll become normal. Why? Because consistency erodes passion over time. The other thing I think that happened to the Ephesian church is that they were living in a society where they had to continually fight for their faith. It says that they were pressed in on every side. They walk through pain. Sometimes when you're walking through pain, you do everything you can just to make it through. One foot in front of the other. It's a coping mechanism. We would just shut down places of our heart so that we can make it. And they made it. Good discipline, good deeds, good determination, good doctrine, they made it but they lost a piece of what made them. Pain and time have the unique ability to turn us into duty-driven robots. Because over time, when God's faithfulness and his love is so consistent, 
we can lose sight of it. Or maybe it's just walking through pain and and we just got to get through it. You might want to write this down. Our affections determine the effectiveness of our actions. Our affections determine the effectiveness of our actions. And so over the next few minutes, I want to dive in and I want to explore how this might have happened. Let's dive into the drift and dissect how does this happen for them and how might this happen for us. The first thing that probably happened for the Ephesian church is that good things supersede ultimate things. Good things supersede ultimate things. Had heresy hunting killed love? Had hard work for God substituted life with God? Was orthodoxy achieved at the expense of fellowship? I don't know if the B symbolizes Ephesus and the Ephesian church, but I think a lot of us can relate to this idea of of good things superseding ultimate things because we live in a busy society and a busy culture, don't we? It can be easy to, to fill our life with as many things as we want to fill our life with. You ask somebody now, how are you doing? It used to be, good, how are you? Now it's busy, how are you? So I had to remind myself that the busy life is not necessarily the productive life. Busyness and productivity are two very different things. But also, the busy life is the distracted life. We're just letting everything push in on us, and everything becomes important. And if everything's important, nothing is. I think that might be what happened to the Ephesian church. They got busy being the church. They got busy doing church. I don't know about you, but but taking kids to sporting events and extracurricular activities and things involved in the neighborhood and and community events and working to the bone just in order to, to keep things afloat financially, can it be easy to lose our heart in a noisy world? So let me throw out a practice you could try this week if this is something that you wrestle with. Maybe this week, choose a day and just take a media fast. You say, I'm just going to quiet the noise. I'm going to get back to the things that God's inviting me to that stir my soul, that, that feed my soul. The ancient Hebrews had a way of doing this. Every morning and every evening, they would say the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God every morning, every evening. These are the anchors and the bookends in their life. This is what we're all about. We're about loving God. And maybe we need those same bookends. Here's the second thing that happens. Religiosity replaces intimacy. Religiosity replaces intimacy. We move towards religiosity because it's a lot easier to control God than it is to connect with God. Let me say that again because I think it's important for us. It's easier for us to control God than it is to connect with God. And there's two ways that I've seen myself try to control God and other people, and maybe you've seen it in yourself as well. Uh, The first trap is is called the performance trap. That's what religiosity tells us. It's performed. Do all the things. Good deeds, good doctrine, good discipline, good determination. Yes, perform. Do it. Do it. Religion says perform and produce. Jesus says abide and rest. 
You can have one or the other as the focus of your life, but you cannot have both. We use religiosity and we use performance as as a way to protect ourselves. The question in the back of our mind is, am I good enough? Do I add up? So we protect ourselves from pain. We protect ourselves from being let down by others. And if we can play the part, no one has to see our heart, right? So do you want a litmus test? We know that we have fallen prey to performance when we'd rather be pleased, we'd rather be praised than be known. Listen to the way that Jesus talks to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. His invitation is just to drop the mask. That's the performance trap. Then there's a programmed trap. This is the approach to faith that says, if it works for me, then it should work for you. You just plug it into the equation. If you would get up and read your Bible for 30 minutes every morning, then you would fill in the blank, right? Works for me, so it should work for everyone else. But here's the deal, friends. The spiritual journey that you and the people around you walk is as unique as every person in this room. There's some things we can put into place, certainly, that that the Bible invites us to have in our life. But the reality is, is you're gonna connect with God a little bit differently than I do, and that's okay. It's okay. We've just gotta keep the end in mind. The end is Jesus. It's Christ-likeness. It's why Jesus will say to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying, you can read all the Bible that you want, but if you don't have the right goal in mind, it won't do you any good. He's going, it points to me. In fact, the longer you go on in this just study, just study, just study, probably the colder you get. The invitation is to him. Here's the third reason. We forget the why behind the what. Simon Sinek did a TED Talk over a decade ago called Start With Why. It has tens of millions of views because he's hitting on something that's transcendent within all of us. We know we should begin asking the question why, but it's so easy just to land on what. So let me push on you a little bit. We know that it's easy to go home without being home. We forget the why. We disconnect, we we disengage. We know that it's easy to be physically present in a place without actually being present there, right? We forget the why behind the what. That's a great question to ask every time that you walk through these doors. Why am I here? Why am I here? Why gather on a weekly basis? Why build this as a rhythm into my life and in my soul? Why am I here? We know that it's easy to have a child. It's not easy to be a parent. There's a why behind the what. And sometimes we lose sight of it, don't we? If you're thinking, okay, maybe that's me, here's a litmus test for you. 
How do we know if maybe we've drifted to the same place that the Ephesian church drifted? Is it hard for you to experience joy? Maybe you've drifted. Are silence and solitude things you avoid like the plague? Or rather, do you pursue them like a lifeline? Can you come to a worship time like we had this morning and be unmoved and unchanged? Do you find yourself resistant and exhausted by times of serving rather than seeing that you're connected to the greater mission that God is inviting you to live? Do you feel unappreciated, underappreciated, maybe a little bit bitter, maybe a little bit cynical, maybe a little bit judgmental? I think maybe what may have happened to the Ephesian church is that they were far more interested in being right than they were in being loving. Something happens over time. People become a problem to solve rather than an invitation to step into. They drifted. Jesus doesn't just hang them out to dry and say, you should try harder, you should do better. He gives them very specific instruction. Remember, commendation, good deeds, good doctrine, good determination, good discipline. Then condemnation, you have left your first love. Then instruction. Verse 5 says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He gives them three things to do. And we're going to press in on these today. I'm going to invite you at the end of, of our service to ask God, would you stir up your love in me? Let's open up ourselves to God doing that because I think there's probably some of us who need to go through this process. If we can admit, man, I've grown cold, God will meet us in that place. But if we continue to wear the mask, we'll hold him at arm's length. Here's what he says first, remember. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Ephesian church, remember. Remember when you take your scrolls and, and you take your idols and you burn them? Thousands of dollars worth of scrolls and idols burned in the city streets because you were so ferociously passionate about Jesus? Someone's great programs replaced passionate faith. Remember. I just sense God saying to me this week, Joel, remember when you used to walk on college campuses unashamedly and share Jesus with students? Remember? I have this old NIV study Bible, and I got it out this week just to look at it, to, to smell it, and, and to remember what it was like as a 17-year-old high school student to fall in love with Jesus and his word. Man, what was it for you? Do you remember? And then he says, repent. Repent. It's a change of mind. Maybe there's some baggage that, that you picked up along the way. Like, maturity means boring, right? So in order to be mature, I've got to leave the joy that I had at first. I've got to become polished and professional and, and have all things together. Repent of that. It's from the pit of hell. It's a change of mind. And maybe through time and, and maybe because of pain, we've started to carry some baggage that Jesus didn't intend for us to carry. Repent is a beautiful word. It means no matter how cold you have grown, the invitation is to come home. So change your mind. 
Then Jesus says, okay, those things you used to do, redo them. Redo them. Do them again. Whatever those were, do them again. And maybe this week you just take some time and you think back through. If you've been following Jesus for a while, then think back to what were some of those things. Flip back through an old Bible or an old journal and go, what was going on inside of me when I first started walking with Jesus? Maybe you ask some people who were journeying alongside of you during that season of life and you ask them, what did you see in me when I first met Jesus? They may go, oh man, I, I saw somebody who was legalistic. I saw somebody who was struggling. Can I just say you don't want to go back to that? But, but maybe they saw some things that were beautiful. And so take some, some time this week and write down some of those things. Maybe God is inviting you to repent, to, to change your mind to change your mind from, from playing religious games rather than walking with Jesus. If that's you, can I encourage you this week to choose not to embellish the truth in order to make yourself look better? We do this all the time. Maybe you choose not to go there this week and think through it first. Maybe people have become a problem to solve rather than an invitation from God to step into. So what if this week you found one way to generously express care to somebody who's different than you? Maybe even somebody who's frustrating to you. Maybe somebody who you've walked past for the last however many weeks because generosity is one distinction of being a loving person. Loving God, loving others. Maybe this week you share your love for Jesus with somebody. Rejecting having a private faith. It doesn't have to be weird or awkward. If it's real to you, it'll come out. Which one is it? Here's the way that Jesus closes the letter in verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes, to the one who fights the tendency to grow cold, to the one who stokes their spiritual fire through remembering, repenting, and redoing, to those people, to the overcomers. He says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Real quick, then we're going to land the plane. The Ephesians would have seen the tree of life as something that was in the temple of Artemis. They had trees of life. They were trees of salvation. They were trees of hope. There was a deification of these trees, and Jesus uses this sort of play on images here. He says, do you want to go to that tree, or do you want to go to the eternal life tree? That's my tree. In Revelation 22, verse 2, he's talking about this, this tree of eternal life, and he says, the leaves of that tree are for the healing of nations. And so this is Jesus' invitation. Return. Return. Return to the love you had at first. Without love, nothing else matters. With love, everything falls into place. Michael and the worship team are going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a, in a final song. and We're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to stir our affection for him. I'm going to be down here front. We're going to have ministers. We're going to have counselors up here who are going to be available. 
And I'd love for people to be able to say, I need somebody to pray for me. I want somebody to pray for me. I want to enter into this journey of saying, God, there's some things I believe about you. There's some things, some areas where I've grown cold. And I just want you to stir up in me. I can tell you that I've had the opportunity to visit some beautiful cathedrals in this world. Massive, gorgeous buildings. But I'll tell you what, there are more people gathered here today than are there. The outside looks great, but the inside has grown cold. It doesn't just happen in buildings. It doesn't just happen in movements. It happens in people too. Maybe for you, the outside looks great, but the inside is being hollowed out. It's grown cold. So I want you to be honest and then responsive. To say, God, if your invitation is that there's a road home here, I want to walk it. So we're just going to use the last few minutes of our service. We're going to allow God to minister to us. So right now, I want to invite you to stand. Go ahead and stand. If you'd like somebody to pray with you and you'd like somebody to pray for, for you, I'm going to encourage you during this last song to make that step and say, God, I want you to move in my heart again. And let's just allow God to, to do some business here today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, it is a beautiful thing that you just don't want us to be duty-driven, robotic, perfectly behaved Christians. But you want us to be passionately loving people. God, we want that too. So would you stir us up? We're open. Would you stir us up? Would you show us where we've gone off course? And God, would you invite us back? We pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.